You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Repertorio Felix. I'd like to introduce today's event. For more than 30 years, the River Cafe in London has been the home from home of artists, architects, designers, actors, collectors, writers and politicians. On River Cafe Table 4, chef and owner of the River Cafe, Ruth Rogers, sits down with her customers to talk about food memories. And today we're excited to welcome her guests, Massimo Batura and Lara Gilmore, for this very special live recording of the podcast. Massimo Batura is the chef patron of Osteria Francescana, a globally celebrated three Michelin star restaurant based in Modena, Italy, where he grew up. Lara Gilmore is a fine arts major, restaurateur, author and hotelier. Their new book, Slow Food, Fast Cars, tells the story and shares recipes from the idyllic 18th century guest house, Casa Maria Luger. Welcome. It's so good to be here. There are 20 regions in Italy, from Piemonte in the north to Sicily in the south. This is a fact, but let me tell you about 21st region. The region next to Emilia Romana is warm, it's welcoming, and it's inclusive. The food has its roots in tradition. The views are stunning. A love of the arts is everywhere. Ethics and social justice a priority. When you're there, you'll never want to leave, though if you do, there's no speed limit for fast cars. The region I'm describing is not a place, but two people, Massimo Pittura and Lara Gilmore. Of course, I've known about this region for years, but only since last Thursday, when a table was booked in the River Cafe, did I experience them. The excitement of Massimo and Lara, creative director and three-star Michelin, four-star Michelin chef, coming to the restaurant was huge. And I have to admit that I canceled a theater date to pick up the shift, so to be there for this momentous occasion. The chefs in the kitchen stopped on my behalf to organize a competition, guessing what they would order. <laughs> Grilled squid, tagatelli with porcini, wood roasted turbot, and no dessert. A few days later, we went to hear Massimo and Lara tell a packed lecture theater in the Victorian Albert Museum their story of starting Osteria Francescana and Clasa Luigi, their ambitions, their values, their love for hospitality, and their love for each other. It was an astonishing hour. Today, we're here for a live podcast of Ruthie's Table 4 to talk with Massimo and Lara, co-authors of the just-published and fantastic book, Slow Food, Fast Chars. They are heroes to chefs everywhere. They are my new friends, and they are the 21st region of Italy. Wow. Can't, 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 can I keep this? 
Well, no. <laughs> please, please. I would never say no to you. Of course no. you can. Oh my God, it's amazing. No. It's amazing. <laughs> well, it was, it was written from the heart. And I think that the regions of Italy are so important. But for me, having lived there, having worked there, having family, I'd say that it's not region to region. It's city to city. It's town to town, village to village. And in our case, family to family. And in even another case, sister to sister, brother to brother. And I remember once, and this is, I want you to carry on, that I was in our house in the Val d'Orcia and we were going to do a porchetta and I went to the butcher and he said, how are you going to cook it? And I thought, ah, oh, you think you're talking to anybody? You know, I am a chef. And so I said, oh, I'm going to take sea salt and fennel seed and I'm going to do, 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 do. And he went, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> That's what they do in Siena. Now Siena was 40 miles away. You know? And so I think that closeness, that pride and that interest in where you're from. Over to you. When I hear a ragu alla bolognese, you know, I got like, oh, I'm like ragu alla bolognese. I'm not cooking the ragu alla bolognese. I'm from Modena. Yeah. You know, we won against the bolognese and we keep winning. So is ragu alla modenese almost No, everything hand chopped with the right pieces, very, there you have like some pork, some cuts, some uh, um, uh, beef, uh, bone marrow, very complicated. Bolognese, it's just pork. Come on. It's so much about identity from one table to the next, even in a town like Modena, the tortellini are different. The tagliatelle are different, thinner, thicker, cut in a different way. The ragu, you're filling in the tortellini. And as an American coming over to Italy 30 years ago, this is my 30th anniversary in Modena. I arrived in the fall of 1993 for Massimo's birthday. I fell in love with that, making everything personal. A meal is a personal tribute to your mother, your grandmother, what you learned, what was passed on, and then you've, you've mixed it all together. I think those traditions are so important to keep alive. What you said about the 21st region, Massimo and I creating this, not only a property we invite people into, not only the restaurants, but our imagination has been added to the landscape, to the ingredients, to the artisans, to create something that is unique. And when we have our guests come in, we want them to have that feeling that they're in a very special place, a moment in time, passing it with us. And do you think back, though, because you grew up in Emilia Romana, you grew up in New York. Are you constantly referring to both of your backgrounds? Of course. Uh, I grew up in Modena. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, of course, it's like this. To me, I'm acting a very local, you know, We built a relationship with our farmers, fishermen, cheesemakers, our artisans, everyone around in the area. But we are acting very global, very open mind. You know, as we, I learned since I was in New York and uh, I met Lara first time, uh, she introduced me to contemporary art. And uh, she was saying, I said, no, my art, art uh, is over after Duchamp. And I said, no, you have to look uh, much deeper. You have to look, uh, you have to understand when it's done this, when it was done that, why the artist is that. And since then, everything changed. We are acting in a very low, but imagine in the last uh, tasting menu in Osteria Francescana, we have uh, the tortellini, you know, like I open uh, the, the, the kitchen and the, the creative process uh, with, for 
all our 65 chefs, they are working there, 65 for 30 covers, to express and rebuild our history of 40 years uh, in Osteria Francescana, but filtered by a contemporary mind and the culture biodiversity of each one of them. And uh, the first course that Korean chef came out with the idea was the tortellini are walking on the broth. I was like, wow, this is going to be they're gonna still crucify me walking, in Modena, walking, you know. Walking, not swimming. You know, walking. but the tortellini, the tortellini, <laughs> you know, instead of being tortellini, they're like dumpling, they want to be tortellini, you know. Imagine, imagine the locals eating dumpling up, up there, like walking in the middle of the broth, standing there with Korean toasted nori creamy sauce, uh, cured eggs in the middle. But what I, I keep saying to all the locals, they come, imagine, you know, the Asians, the people they travel, they try this uh, dumpling better than any dumpling because the mixture and the tortellini, though it's made with the best product of Emilia-Romagna, like parmigiano, but also prosciutto, but also mortadella, but also the balance between veal and pork, but also some bone marrow, but also some uh, nutmeg, you know, extremely complicated, but extremely balanced. And you go there and you feel these little dumplings that come up like that and they stand there in the middle of the broth. It's going to be an incredible message for everyone. Yeah, but the tortellini are better. (laughs) So, to give it some context, the new menu in Austria Francescana, Massimo challenged the whole team to look at our most iconic dishes, the ones that are in Never Trust a Skinny Italian Chef, and each individual on the team was given the opportunity to reinterpret them, choosing whatever they wanted. Choi, this Korean chef, chose to reinterpret the tortellini. And so for us, it has been such an amazing year because all of a sudden we're seeing the dishes that we know and love, have written about and talked about, through someone else's eyes. And so it's very interesting after all these years, 28 in Austria Francescana, that we're still up to being playful and to taking risks and to trying to see something from a different point of view. Well, a different point of view, we can also talk about, and we have much to talk about, is seasonality. And as you know, in this little podcast that we do, we ask chefs to read their own recipes. Most everybody else reads a recipe from one of our books. But we asked you to choose a recipe, and the recipe that you chose to read is a recipe for... Pears. As a North American who moved 30 years ago to Italy, our head chef, Jessica Roosevelt, who wrote the recipes for Slow Food Fast Cars, is another North American. She's from Montreal. And she and I definitely had a bonding over this project because I kept asking Jess, who is in Austria, Francescana, working in a three-star Michelin restaurant, in her free time, if she could come by to Casa Meluigia, help design the kitchen, help me do interviews to find a head chef. The more time she spent at Casa Meluigia, I had already planted a vegetable garden, and so we had some Brussels sprouts coming up, and she wanted to learn how to use our wood-fired oven. And so day by day, as she spent more time there, I realized she was never going to find a head chef because she wanted the job herself. And it's been an extraordinary collaboration because both of us fell in love with Modena. We've tried to look at the ingredients, the traditions from a distance, from our completely different cultural upbringing, and sometimes seeing them in a way that the Modenese don't see them, like Cotechino, 
we serve for breakfast. And it is so delicious cooked under the wood-burning oven. So this comes from our breakfast recipes, but of course it can be served any time of the day. We cook these pears in an iron cast skillet and finish them off in the wood-burning oven. If you don't have a wood-burning oven, you can also just do it over... No, uh, you can do it. <laughs> you can. It just might not, might not taste the same. So It's a good way to sell books, right? You cannot do it. <laughs> this recipe is from the cookbook, Slow Food Fast Cars. Pears. Serve six. Three pears, 120 grams cane sugar, six tablespoons of saba, four sprigs of rosemary, pinch of flaky sea salt. Preheat a wood oven to 220 degrees. Cut each pear into eight wedges. Remove the cores and seeds. Place them in a 12-inch cast iron skillet. Cut sides up. Sprinkle the sugar and the four tablespoons of saba on top. Add one tablespoon of water to prevent the fruit from drying out. Insert the rosemary between the pear slices, Cook until golden, about 12 minutes. Take the pears off the oven, drizzle with the remaining saba, sprinkle with salt, and serve warm. I always say a recipe wow. is part poetry and part science, isn't it? It is poetry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's beautifully read. Can you tell us about saba? Yeah, of course. But first, I have to talk about breakfast. Because oh, to me, okay. the breakfast <laughs> that we did... That I said, I, can I just tell you that I really did think when I heard them at the V&A that I could ask one question and come and join you. Because... <laughs> you know, we did, we did, you know, we I, were like, we were like, uh, uh, we were here. recording a master class. I am kind of the boss, you know. Uh, I know, I know, but now listen, listen to this. We were uh, talking about, uh, we were recording master class, me and Taka, you know, and Jessica behind the scene uh, prepare everything. And the director was keep asking questions, no? because, you know, I get lost into my ideas. So at one point, we were playing something with Parmigiano. So he said from behind the scene, uh, but can you tell us about uh, how many grams of Parmigiano-Reggiano you're putting in the recipe? And I was looking at him and said, you didn't understand anything, you know, because it's not about how many grams of Parmigiano. It's about your mental palate. And I start talking and explaining how to pick the right Parmigiano for 40 minutes. And they were still recording. And I was like, I just asked how many grams. <laughs> I think it was the first time that I heard a chef on Masterclass say, you have to tune your mental palate. I mean, it's like your little Jiminy Cricket there. But Massimo's been talking about it forever since I first met him. I think when we met in Cafe di Nona in 1993, when we kind of ran into each other in this little restaurant, he started talking about the mental palate, and I thought, who is this guy? But no, but it's, it's so easy because it's like if you get a Parmigiano-Reggiano, it's not the same Parmigiano from autumn or winter or spring because it's aging in a different way, because the animals, they eat the different food, etc., etc., etc. It's completely different. So how can you say 30 grams of Parmigiano-Reggiano? Just listen to your palate. Your palate is telling you how many grams of Parmigiano-Reggiano you have to put. Okay, back to Saba. Saba is the must. Actually, since we are in Maria Luigia, we make our own must with our own vineyard of Trebbiano di Spagna. It's very important, like the white grape full of sugar, but also vanilla, but also back taste that reminds you apricots and peaches. We harvest, we go, we press very softly to get il fiore, the little soft press. Let him sit for a while to get extremely clean. At this point, we boil very, very mild, like 
69, 70 degrees. And once it's reduced in the right way, because it's all about tasting, uh, it depends on the year, it depends on the harvest, it depends on uh, the water and everything, could be between uh, 30 and 50%, you have the Saba. And that's the best thing ever. I still remember one Christmas, we were stealing the key from the pocket of my grandmother because she was the only one who had the key to go upstairs and open uh, the door where all the vinegar and the saba was uh, sitting on Christmas time during a very big snowstorm. We stolen a little bit of saba. We went downstairs. We put the snow in the in a in a in a in a in a glass. Pour the saba, mixing and eating slow a saba. So this is memory. This is a, a delinquent child, right? This is <laughs> this is a new form of rebellion that we see is in, in in an Italian house where this is what two naughty children get up to. You know, they take the saba, they take the snow, and they enjoy it. Did your grandmother find out that you had done it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> and so I think that brings up a kind of cultural idea of what food is about growing up, taking the saba, of having your grandmother's cooking. Did you grow up with an American version of that? So I did not grow up with a grandmother doing much cooking, but in the early years, my parents met in Washington, D.C. My dad was an editor for a newspaper and got invited to a lot of embassy dinners. And my mother was a very curious cook. Not only was she number one fan of Julia Child, but she would always sneak behind the kitchen of the embassy dinners, whether it was the Chinese embassy, Japanese embassy, Indian embassy, and she'd get the recipe. So later she became a host, many different dinner parties at home. That's when I began my culinary career, in the kitchen, serving as a 10-year-old, making sure the rice pilaf didn't burn, cleaning the dishes. But she was always an adventurous cook. And so I think that my sister and I really got this sense of food is a way that you can travel. You don't have to get on an airplane. You can start cooking. You can start smelling how different spices fill up a kitchen. And in your imagination, you can go anywhere through food. And so she gave us that curiosity. She also taught me that my first job, I should work as a waitress. And I worked in a Friendly's, this ice cream diner, when Friendly's. I was 16 years old. And ever since then, it was just, she just set me up to meet Massimo and, uh, you know. Actually, Mrs. Gilmore, she's amazing cook. She's an amazing cook. And was your grandmother or your mother or both of them great cooks? Who was the influence? My grandmother was really bad cook. Bad? Oh, yeah. okay. Because she had to cook for the whole family. My mom, she was an amazing cook because she loved to cook. That's a very important difference. Because cooking is an act of love, as I always write, to remind all the young chefs that I met. It's all about love. It's all about what you serve. You know, I keep saying to everyone in Osteria, in Maria Luisa, in Francescana, Gatto Verde, you know, serving a good food is one thing. Serving emotion is another thing. It's going to stay with you forever. And that's a very important part. But the breakfast was inspired by my grandmother, by her choice. She was cooking one day a year with lots of love, was Christmas Day. She was waking up very early with burn oven, cooking everything we are preparing and serving, the breakfast for everyone, for the whole family. 
Same, we are serving now at Maria Luisa's breakfast, fried dough with mortadella, some um, frittatine in the wood-burn oven uh, with a very slow-cooking onion finished with some balsamic vinegar on top, uh, some uh, cotechino under the ashes with zabaione on top, uh, erbazzone or other different quiche, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, all these kind of... Uh, savory and sweet because uh, Emilia Cuisine has always been about savory and sweetness uh, and this is was like this and we challenge us to repeat this kind of breakfast every day because as we said in Maria Luisa we won uh, an experience that is different from any other hotel in the world we want the kitchen always open with parmigiano and lambrusco on top of the counter so you can go there and eat parmigiano and lambrusco and you understand you are in Modena but also breakfast has to be an experience like we want Christmas every day in Modena for our guests and our guests enjoy so much they stay they spend couple of hours there having a cappuccino and then an erbazzone and another cappuccino and and some cotechino and uh, and sbrizolona you know this kind of stuff the river cafe is excited to announce the return of our italian christmas gift boxes our alternative to the traditional hamper we bring you all of our favorites from the river cafe kitchen vineyards and the designers from all over Italy. They're available to pre-order now on shoptherivercafe.co.uk. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Help helps is a maxim I believe in. We all carry around stress and hardship, and when we keep it inside, it starts to chip away. Therapy is a safe place, and therapy is for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp dot com slash Ruthie today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help. H-E-L-P dot com slash Ruthie. Betterhelp dot com slash Ruthie. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare did you grow up with breakfast so i grew up with typical pancakes bacon eggs however when I go back, my mother's in Colorado now, when I go to visit her at Christmas time, the one meal that I look forward to the most is we recreate this Sunday brunch, kind of like your breakfast that you had at Christmas time. And we'll make crepes and salmon and eggs. And so there's that sort of celebration in that breakfast. I didn't grow up with an everyday breakfast like that, but Sundays were always a special moment. My dad, who worked a lot, 
was the pancake maker. So I have this very fond, nostalgic feeling every time I eat a pancake because he was the one who did the flipping. So there you are, your, your father and the memories. Did he cook other than just... No, I remember one yeah. thing about his father. <laughs> Told you I could. You know, no, tell the story about the tongue. Tell the story about the tongue. Do you tell the story about no, the please, tongue? Please tell it. You tell it. You tell it. No, you tell it much better than you know, I do. One of the things, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, in Modena you eat is bollito misto. Yes, yes. Of course, bollito misto. And the, the things that I love the most in Bolito Misto is a veal tongue, you know. And, and these are things that Americans do not grow up do, with, no, ever. No, <laughs> And Mr. Gilmore, no, never, never. You know, so... With, my sister's wedding, I cook for my sister's wedding. The only wedding I cooked for. At the end of the meal, I was serving like everything, like tortellini, lasagna, crunchy part, whatever, a little bit uh, avant-garde, a little bit uh, classic. But bolito misto, I picked the tongue and testina, and I was served with uh, all these different sauces. And uh, at the end of the meal, I went to, to the table of Mr. and Mrs. Gilmore, and uh, I was asking, so Mr. Gilmore, did you like the, 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 you know, the bolito misto? Massimo, I loved it. I loved it. And I said, wow, I'm very happy, you know. What meat was that? I said, uh, veal tongue. He looked at me. <laughs> he looked at me with the face. What did he answer? You know, make sure you don't invite me any more when you, when you cook that kind of stuff. You know, I was like. Never invite me again. <laughs> Never. Never. Yeah. That's why I keep saying to everyone, listen to your palate, because your palate is telling you the things and give a chance. It's very important. To try. To try and understand. The... How do you feel when you go to other regions of Italy? If you go to Puglia, if you go to Tuscany, if you go to Naples, how do you feel about the other regional food of your country? For me, it's an amazing discovery. And I love to, um, I get really curious how they treat the same vegetable, do their peppers completely differently, their potatoes completely differently. They use different herbs and spices. And we love to bring a lot of that also into the kitchen of Casa Luigi. We make a traponese, which mm -hmm. is a Sicilian so kind Sicilian, of pesto yeah. and uh, completely different from the Genova pesto. And that makes you understand also that a pesto is an idea. It's not a recipe. It's a way of putting together whatever you have that could be your mint and your almonds or, you know, your, your basil. So I learned so much by going to other regions. And I've been in Italy for 30 years and I still feel like I get in my discovery. car and drive. Yeah. I have so much to discover. Did you travel when you were a child? Did your parents take you to yeah, yeah, all yeah. over Italy? All yeah. over, all over. From my point of view, like look at Italy and the regions, I got three regions that are extremely important for me. Sicily, it's very, very south, almost Africa, you know, like in the middle of Mediterranean with incredible, incredible, tasty things like the capers from Pantelleria, they're lightly salt by the wind. Costiera Marfitana, sun and wind, with, uh, you know, these lemons, these, all these flavors from Costiera, and Piemonte. Completely different one from the other. And I got so many inspiration and so many ingredients that I use uh, in Emilia Cuisine and introduce in Emilia Cuisine. 
because they are so tasty and important. Like, like what? Earthiness, like nuts. You know, the hazelnuts. The hazelnuts, hazelnuts yeah. uh, or like the almond from Noto. They are both uh, incredible. Like imagine Oops, I Dropped the Lemon Tart. It's all about those ingredients. Do you know about Oops, I Dropped the Lemon Tart? Yeah, we, we do a really bourgeois version of this, which is that <laughs> we make a lemon custard and then we put it in the pastry and then we put it in the wood oven. And then we read about, no, 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 this is, you know, this is really bourgeois. And so what we want to know is, oops, I dropped a lemon tart. Uh, oops, I dropped a lemon tart. There is a line of flavors that you, you can pick and uh, mix with the lemon, the smashed lemon tart. They're like the range of flavor of south of Italy. You have the oregano from Puglia, the spicy pepper from Basilicata, the almond from Noto, capers from Pantelleria, sweet and salty, the bergamots from Calabria, the lemon from Sorrento. All these flavors are the range of flavors of south of Italy. So to me, when it was so natural, when I saw Taka smashing the lemon tart. Can you the tell plate. the story? What happened? Just very it's quickly. It's such a tell good story. It's tell a good story. story. Tell us. All right. So... It was a, a, a lunch, a last service, two seats. You know, we were like ready to serve these two guests. One of them was a journalist in the middle of the room. At one point, uh, the whole kitchen was already there, like cleaning. Uh, the radio was not, you know, pushing, but uh, the music was there. And Taka was ready. Taka is my Japanese chef. You know, my, the Japanese are incredible, but they don't manage the rational, okay? They manage their, their everyday life, but not the rational. So he was there to serve uh, the two lemon tart that they already break the border between sweet and savory. I was in the kitchen looking uh, at the guys and the cleaning, and everyone froze. You know, they, it was like, wow! I turned left, and I saw Taka like this. He was completely frozen with one hand uh, with the other tart in his hand. He had uh, some kitchen tools in the left, you know. And I look at, at the bottom on the counter, and one of the two lemon tarts was smashing the plate. And he couldn't, he couldn't move, you know. And everyone was looking at Taka because Taka is Taka. He never made a mistake. He's a Japanese, you know. He cannot make mistakes. He's not allowed to make mistakes. And, uh, you know, he made one, he made a mistake. And, uh, you know, I was like, Taka, you are a genius. <laughs> you found the perfect way to express the imperfection. Because, you know, south of Italy, it's all about south of Italy. South of Italy is the most imperfect place in the world, you know, but it depends on what kind of eyes you use to look at south of Italy. And, it, and the, everyone in the kitchen was looking at me and they said, what did he smoke? You know, you know I was like, when he, I went crazy because I had to solve the problem because we had to serve this two tart. I said, okay, 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 guys, let's do exactly the same thing. Taka, smash the tart exactly in the same way you smashed the first one. I cannot. Why? Because I don't know what I did. So take the tart and smash it exactly as that. So what we have done, you know, like we, we rebuilt the second tart, exactly the first one, because the flavor that were there was the aesthetic part that was completely fucked up. 
And uh, so at that point, we finish with a, with a little ice cream, uh, verbena ice cream, you know, on the side. And we, ser- and we said, okay, time to go with the service. And the service was there. And no one wants to go out with that broken lemon tart. No one, no one. So I said, okay, I'm going by myself. And, um, and uh, you know, I said, okay, you two come get the two tart, and I'm coming and explain. So I went out. The, old, the room was full. The two server, they were there. And, you know, I said, you know, I have to, good, I have to really get, be aggressive, you know. And uh, they serve the two tart to these two journalists, and I start, you know, with a lot of emphasis, you know. What is Italy? Italy! <laughs> Italy is about... The, imagine the other tables. I, Italy is about poetry. And uh, what is Osteria Francescana, the secret of Osteria Francescana? The secret of Osteria Francescana, it's about keep always a door open for the unexpected. It's about walking to the unexpected and uh, create something unique, uh, but uh, always driven by poetry because poetry can make visible the invisible. And, you know, imagine these two people, they were looking at me talking like this and all the other, they were like, but I was very focused on the tart and not thinking about it, not, nothing else. So I said, and... Uh, this is uh, the lemon tart, and these, uh, uh, the, 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 these two beautiful tarts are built in a perfect way, but in the imperfect. So what we are doing, we are serving and rebuilding in a perfect way the imperfection, because it's the expression of South of Italy, because South of Italy is like, yeah, you're late for Capri, but when you're in Capri, you swim in the Grotta Azzurra, and it's the most amazing place in the world. So the point is, what kind of eyes you look at things you have. You have poetry or you don't have poetry. If you have poetry, you imagine an amazing lemon tart. If you don't have poetry, it's a broken lemon tart. For an Italian restaurant like this, in a three Michelin star, what is about poetry? Serving a broken lemon tart. Did they buy that? Silence. (laughs) Silence. No one, no one was saying one word in the whole room. And at that point, one of the two started clapping. Bravo, bravo, bravo. And the whole room started clapping. From that moment, that was the, oops, I dropped the lemon tart. Beautiful. I think that was a round of applause. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. You know, you talked about Julia Child and your mother. And I always say that in England, everybody read Elizabeth David, which was take a tomato and throw it in the pan and make sure it's ripe and make sure that the basil is strong. Whereas Julia Child said, take a tomato of a diameter of three inches and make sure the basil leaf is four leaves. And, but there was a precision about Julia Child, I think, that taught you, if you followed her recipes, you didn't make a mistake. Nice. And that gave you the confidence then to make a mistake because you had the grounding. It's like being able to write poetry, you know, if you know automatopoeia first, and then you can break away. And I think that, you know, that story comes from a history of rigor and discipline, ability then to drop something and put it on a plate. Exactly, and you can't start breaking things. You have to start making them. As Massimo often says, know everything, and then forget everything. And that's the moment that creativity can happen. But you gotta know everything first. You have to study. You can't improvise in the kitchen, but great chefs can take improvisation and bring it to another level. You know, one of the secrets of uh, our success after six, seven years of struggling was uh, to show the locals we can cook better than their grandmothers. Uh, One of the key points was like making tagliatelle a ragu. But Picasso was always saying that. Picasso was saying, I was 13 and I was drawing as Raffaello. So he learned how to draw as Raffaello. And he took the whole life to paint like a kid. That's the point, you know? And in a way, it brings us full circle to the slow food fast cars and the recipes because this book is not the three-star Michelin provocateur chef trying to change the way you see the world, but saying, I have all this experience and I want to share the recipes that are close to me. I want to share the breakfast that I had growing up, what I share, what we share with our guests coming to Casa Luigia, taking something seasonal, simple like pears and making it delicious and having this other layer of flavor. You could serve it for breakfast, for lunch, for tea, and that kind of inviting people in to participate and be part of our world. When I was describing the 21st region of Italy, I also described values and the ethics, the way that you give back to the people who are there who may not be able to partake of the kind of restaurants that I do, that you do. And I think it's a very moving story about how what you see, the place that we're in right now, and how that relates to what you see in your values of being a, an owner and a chef and a creative director of a very beautiful restaurant. How does the Refettorio so come into this story? Today we're in this beautiful space called Refettorio Felix, and uh, it's located in Earl's Court. It's a project that we opened in 2017, but everything began many years before that. I like to think that it began when we got our third Michelin star, We've been working so hard for almost 17 years to finally get that third Michelin star. And when they give it to you, there's a jacket and it's been embroidered on it, the three stars. And Massimo had to hang it in our bedroom just to believe when he woke up in the morning, went to bed at night, that he had actually accomplished that, you know, incredible challenge and mission and dream. But it was probably, you know, the third or the fourth morning that we woke up with the chef's jacket hanging in our bedroom, that we looked at that jacket, and I don't remember who started the conversation, but we came to the conclusion that those stars 
really only had value if we did something with them. If we used the voice that we had worked so hard to get to fight for our artisans, our fishmongers, the cheesemakers, but more than that, what could we do to make more good food for more people? And I think what we tried to do with our Food for Soul project, which started in 2015 with Expo, there was the earthquake that same yeah. year. So we've been on a kind of a mission of our own just to make people sensitive that everyone deserves good food. How can we do that? Fighting food waste is so important. There's so much food that's coming, surplus food from supermarkets, and many times it's being thrown away or even worse, burned, creating more emissions, um, and if we can salvage that and create a delicious and healthy meal for people in need, not only does it fill their bellies, but it's also a way of bringing people around the table. And we know that around the table, the most incredible things happen. Healing begins when you sit down at a table with others. So that's Food for Soul. In a Google research, they found out that we produce food for 12 billion people. We are 7.5 on Earth. 860 million people, they don't have anything to eat. We waste 33% of what we produce. So that means it's just insane because we use water, electricity, human capital to produce food. And after that, we waste it, we burn it, and we become the second cause of climate change. That's, that's insane. So it's like... It's not normal. We have just have to step back and think about what, what you can do with that. So that's what it is. And I thought, and we thought since the beginning, let's do it and let's share with everyone. And uh, what we need, we need the best architects because dream big doesn't cost anything, you know, to create beautiful places because beauty, as Camus was always saying and reminds us, with beauty, you don't do the revolution, but one day when, you're gonna, when you have to rebuild, you need beauty to rebuild. And beauty can rebuild the, and give the second chance in life to people, to fragile souls. And this is uh, the difference between uh, a classic soup kitchen and our refettorio. Absolutely. And if I were to ask you if food is giving back to people, if food is giving happiness, if food is alleviating hunger, food is also comfort. It is comfort. And so my last question, both of you, would not be what is your last meal that you would have, because we don't like that question, but we would say if you need, and I hope you don't need comfort very much, but if you need comfort, if you seek comfort, is there food that you would reach for to make you feel better? My comfort food is risotto. So risotto is the first Italian recipe I learned when I came and studied art in Florence and my cousin was living in Florence and I learned how to make a celery risotto. So both with cooked celery and raw celery, so it's crunchy and it has all the celery flavor. Super simple, onions, celery, parmigiano reggiano and rice. The broth, she didn't even make like a chicken broth. She would just throw in the, um, the end of the celery to make a simple celery broth. And you have that deep celery flavor. But since then, I mean, risotto is the kind of thing you can empty out your pantry and everyone loves a risotto. You make it with what you have. And, uh, and most of all, you make it with love. Even the process of making risotto is comfortable. Because you have to be it? there. You have to be present. You know, I've seen some, um, nothing, not, not, no criticism here, but I do have some friends who make their risotto in these kind of like thermal mixers and the bimbis. And I think, what? You've taken, you never told you've me. taken all. You have friends the like that. Human. <laughs> 
beauty out of staying there and watching. It's like a hen watching her eggs. You're watching your risotto pan. And if you walk, if you step away, something's going to go wrong. And so it's that kind of focus. You're in the kitchen. It doesn't take that long. But everyone gathers around you while you're making the risotto. Is it done? Is it ready? Can we eat? What is yours? Do you have a food? It can be a memory. Uh, as I was saying, I have, I've interviewed people who said a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Oh, or no, for me, for me, like um, <laughs> you can choose. The, the, the comfort food is like open. If I'm home, comfort food is open the refrigerator and get uh, all these, uh, try different ingredients that we receive so many beautiful ingredients from uh, all over Italy and not just Italy. So open the refrigerator taste and, uh, you know, exercise with the palate. It's very easy. You know, you can do in every refrigerator. Yeah, I yeah, but saying, we have like prosciutto, yeah, culatello. Yeah, I know, I know, but I we keep saying, I keep saying, yeah, we have but, all these amazing and, ingredients to me, in Yeah, but to me is that. For yours oh, is risotto, I, you know. Is I know a, what his comfort food is. I know what his comfort food is. We no, 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 you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. It's the amarena. I would say, but you already answered. <laughs> I would say tortellini. If we were on a dating game and we were like blindfolded and we had to say, what is your husband's favorite? What is your husband's comfort food? My answer would be pizza for you. Pizza? pizza. Yeah, yeah because, uh, you know, it's like this pasta. Because pizza can be anything. Yeah. You know, once you have the dough, what do you have? You have porcini. We had porcini and uh, fontina yeah, exactly. uh, pizza that was so delicious. So pizza is also about your imagination, your mood. Go to the River Cafe mood. and try the porcini one. <laughs> No, no, it's right, I'm telling you. And if it's truffle season right now, just some white truffle at the end, you know, at the table. Well, thank you. This is beautiful. And as I said, as I said in the beginning, I'm coming to the 21st region of Italy. Come, we ah, will thank you. embrace you warmly. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. And buy this book. Are you all being given them? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Ruthie's Table 4 is produced by Atomized Studios for iHeartRadio. It's hosted by Ruthie Rogers. It's produced by Willem Malinsky. Our executive producers are Zad Rogers and Faye Stewart. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore. Special thanks to everyone at the River Cafe. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. 
if you dare. <laughs>